This is Come and See from St. Andrew's Anglican Church for July 17, 2011. The Gospel is taken from the book of Matthew, chapter 13, verses 24 through 30 and 36 through 43. The message is by Father Eric Coons. Well, no one is more surprised to see me here this morning than I. Um, I had already given you my uh, swan song last week, and lo and behold, here I am again. Um, Mother Nancy has uh, had a, uh, a bit of an emergency with her a former husband suffering um, a serious heart attack in the wee hours this morning. And so about 1.30, she called me from the hospital and said she wanted to remain there, and I understood that completely, and she asked if I could fill in for her here. Um, and of course, I said yes. I had expected to be preaching in the 11 o'clock service this uh, morning, but Father John Jordan, who is here with us already this morning, welcome, Father John, will be preaching in the 9.30 and 11 o'clock services this morning. You want, may want to stay over for those services, one or the other of them, for that if you want to hear a good sermon. Uh, and so um, I was not, I had been working on that sermon and then I kind of set it aside but uh, the, the, the time from 1.30 this morning until about uh, 6 was uh, very active in my study. And uh, so here we are. And uh, I'm probably more eager to hear what I'm going to say this morning than you are, <laughs> just, just to see if it's going to be cogent at all. The New Testament uses a variety of images to describe the relationship of the people of God to God and to each other. Soldiers in an army, living stones that compose a building in which God lives, sheep in a herd or flock, members of a body, citizens of the kingdom of God. But of all the images in the New Testament, none is filled with more meaning and significance than the one with which this morning's epistle reading, taken from Romans 8, begins. So then, brothers and sisters. By referring to those believers to whom he addressed that letter, to the Christians in Rome, by referring to them as brothers and sisters, Paul meant to emphasize a common parenthood with them. God is both their father and his, and that's a relationship with God on a completely different level of intimacy than that suggested by any of the other images which the New Testament uses to describe and characterize the people of God. As soldiers, God is our commander-in-chief. If we are living stones that compose a building, God is our builder or architect. If we are sheep in a flock, God is our shepherd. If we are members of the body, Jesus Christ is the head of the body. If we are citizens of the kingdom of God, God is the king. And that's very important. Those images are significant. But there's something of a different level of magnitude, a different level of intimacy when we are said to be sons and daughters of the Father, brothers and sisters in the household of faith. In the first part of Romans 8, which was last week's epistle reading, Paul's intent was to remind his readers 
that God had sent His Holy Spirit into the world and into their lives to assure them that their faith in Christ had resulted in God's forgiveness of their sins. Let me remind you a little bit of that reading, beginning at verse 1 of Romans 8. There is therefore now no judgment, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. If the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you. Now that is the technical truth. Faith in Christ results in the forgiveness of sin and the presence of God's Spirit in us, that is, in our bodies. But that's not the end of the point Paul wants to make in Romans 8, as today's epistle reading makes clear. Not only is the Holy Spirit present within us, but that present makes it possible for us to experience the reality of what the New Testament calls the new birth. And by describing our entrance into the church and thus into the kingdom of God in birth language, as Jesus does in John 3, our Lord has established the importance of Christian believers regarding themselves as members of a family. Then here in Romans 8, Paul's point, among others, is to show that the Holy Spirit has been given to us to help us regard God not only as our forgiver, but also as our Father. Moreover, the language Paul uses in Romans 8 makes it clear that the fatherhood of God, to which he refers, does not mean some vague concept which unites all human beings under the generic fatherhood of God and within the brotherhood of mankind. What Paul wants us to understand in this passage that we've heard read this morning is that the Holy Spirit of God who actually lives in the bodies of Christian believer, believers makes it possible for us to know God in an especially deep and personal way. This is fatherhood of the deeply personal sort that's often conveyed better in the term dad than father. Romans 8:15. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. And you don't need me to remind you that the rough equivalent in English of that Aramaic word which Paul uses here, Abba, is Daddy. So Paul's point in Romans 8, 5 to 13, last week's epistle reading, is that the Holy Spirit lives in us if we've exercised faith in the work of Christ on our behalf. Then in Romans 8, 15, at the heart of today's epistle reading, Paul reminds us that the presence of the Holy Spirit establishes a father-child relationship between God and the Christian believer. But there is still more. In those verses immediately surrounding verse 15, namely 14 to 17, Paul wants us to know that the relationship between us and God is not static. It's not simply formal or legal. Intimacy can vary depending on our response and our reaction to the presence of the Spirit within us. I'll read 
verses 14 to 17 of Romans 8. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are children of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. It's important for us to note the different words that Paul uses that are translated in the New Revised Standard Version, which our lectionary uses. The two, two words uh, are translated uh, in both cases by the English word children, but they should be distinguished a bit. For instance, in Romans, in uh, chapter 8, verse 14, the NRSV says, for all who are led by the Spirit of God are the children of God. Technically, that word children there is a Greek word which actually means sons, mature adults, in effect, having achieved majority, fully aware of the benefits and privileges plus the responsibilities of being in the family. Later on, Paul uses the word that is translated children again, but it's a different Greek word. And in verse 16, the text says, the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are, and there again, children of God. And that's all right, because the word used there does mean little children. In fact, babes in arms. I don't want to push too much on those distinctions or on the distinction between those words, but we can't ignore that distinction altogether either. Paul is too careful a wordsmith to use two terms in the same context without good reason. His point is, yes, believer, you can rest in the confidence, verse 14 of chapter 8, that if you are genuinely newborn, the strongest evidence of that fact will be the Holy Spirit in you, bearing witness with your own spirit that you are a child of God, born again into the family of God, to use the image that Jesus used with Nicodemus. But there's more. All believers are God's children, but then there are those who are led by God's spirit. Those have the potential of moving on to a deeper appreciation of God and their relationship with him. They are the ones who grow mature in faith as they are led by God's spirit. So again, Paul says in Romans 8:16, the spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and that applies to all those who have come to God by faith in Christ. But he also says in that same context, all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God, maturing, growing in grace with a deeper appreciation of the relationship that we have with God and the privilege thereof. Every Christian has the Spirit of God living inside him or her. Every Christian is a child of God. Every Christian has the potential of growing, developing, deepening, maturing in relationship with God. 
Unfortunately, not every Christian experiences this deepening intimacy and maturity. Too many Christians make very little progress in spiritual growth beyond the point of new birth or conversion experience. Maturity in faith, like maturity in life itself, requires more than just the passage of time. It requires a conscientious, concerted effort to recognize the place of the Spirit of God in our lives and to give over full control of that life to the direction and control of the Spirit of God. That's what is involved in being led by God's Spirit. Let me read, if I may, the, a parallel passage that Paul has written to the Galatians in chapter 5 of that letter. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other, to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. So if we live by the Spirit, let us also walk by the Spirit. Two times in that passage, Galatians 5, 16 to 25, Paul uses the phrase, walk by the Spirit or walk in the Spirit. The first time, in verse 16, it is a word that means, the word walk, just to walk around. The act of walking, moving our limbs. It's a metaphor, I think, for the activities of daily living. I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. But the phrase occurs again in verse 25, and there the word walk means to walk in a line, to walk holding to a rule, to walk as though you are guided by some outside direction or force. That phrase, I think, is a metaphor to suggest that in our Christian walk, daily living, we proceed under the control and direction of another that is the Holy Spirit of God. And that is precisely what J.I. Packer, one of my favorite Anglican authors, means in his book-long exposition of this passage called Keep in Step with the Spirit. So when we combine these two passages by Paul, Romans 8, our epistle reading this morning, and Galatians 5 that I've just read, what do we learn about practical Christian discipleship on a Sunday morning in July 2011? Let me summarize. One, as believers in Jesus Christ, we have the Spirit of God living in our bodies. Two, His presence in us makes us aware and certain that we have been forgiven of sin. Three, equally important, the presence of the Holy Spirit within us makes it possible for us to relate to God not only as forgiver, but also as Father. And four, the depth of that 
father relationship with God and the level of intimacy that we can experience in our relationship with him depends on our desire and our willingness to be led by the Spirit in our daily lives. Now, now that summary leaves me with two questions, neither of which I can develop here this morning, but I must mention them. One, how does the Holy Spirit lead us? Because that's what Paul says is the way we experience growth and maturity. And two, what are the evidences that we're being led by the Spirit? It's unfair to raise those questions without answering them, but within our time constraints, it's not possible to do them justice, maybe at a later time. But I can hint this morning at what I think the answers would be. To the first question, how does the Holy Spirit lead us? In a variety of ways, but certainly, at least, we are led in large part through the Scriptures and through the Spirit's inner witness to truth in our minds and hearts. And here's my reasoning on this in a nutshell. In the Upper Room Discourse, in John 14 to 16, Jesus repeatedly refers to the Holy Spirit as the Spirit of truth. Then in his high priestly prayer, as we call it, in John 17 at the end of that discourse, Jesus, in addressing God the Father, says, Your word, Father, is truth. Further, I'm convinced that to be led by the Spirit, which is Paul's term here in Romans 8, is the same as to be filled with the Spirit, which is the way he puts it in Ephesians 5. And when we compare the characteristics of being filled with the Spirit in Ephesians 5, with another list of characteristics that Paul records in, Galatians, in the Colossians 3, the two lists are almost verbatim the same. And yet, in Ephesians 5, those characteristics are of being led by the Spirit, while in Colossians 3, those very same characteristics describe one who is being led by the Word of God. So I think that one of the primary means by which we are led by the Spirit, certainly not the only one, is the Spirit's making known to us the truth of Jesus in the Scripture. Certainly, no one can say, I am led by the Spirit of God in my experience as a believer who is not familiar with God's communication to us in Scripture. And to the second question, what are the evidences that we are being led by the Spirit, I think the first and foremost of those must be what Paul calls the fruit of the Spirit, which we read in the passage from Galatians 5, love, joy, peace, gentleness, temperance, long-suffering. Maturity in faith means that we're eager for the characteristics of Jesus Christ, which those qualities and graces describe. Christ's characteristics to be developed in us by the power of God's Spirit. And in addition to the fruit of the Spirit, one who is being led by the Spirit, I suggest, yearns for a deepening intimacy with God in prayer and meditation, the development of that Abba-Father relationship, and the one who is being led by the Spirit desires that all of his or her life be lived in a way that brings glory to God. 
and I could develop, excuse me, I could develop each of those to make the case. Now, neither the point of Paul's words in Romans 8 nor the point of this sermon is to suggest that there is some set of requirements, some list of behaviors to which we must conform in order to be in the club of mature Christians. Paul's intention, I think, and mine for sure, is simply to suggest that there is far more to the exciting opportunity we have to live as Christian disciples than most church members ever experience or realize. The goal is not to achieve some elevated level of super-pious, super-spirituality, The goal is to be constantly moving under the leadership and direction of the Holy Spirit toward Christ-likeness more and more, day by day. That's being led by the Spirit. And the church will always have folks at various positions along the continuum, which we could call growing in grace or being led by the Spirit. And that's one of the exciting things about being part of the church. Those that are farther along in their experience encourage those who are just starting out. And those whose experience is fresh and new help to keep those of us who have been on the way for some time from growing old and stale in our walk of faith. The point is, not that we have attained, but that we are being led by the Spirit. Otherwise, no matter how long we've been part of the family of God, we still bear the marks and exhibit the characteristics of infants, not those of growing, maturing believers. When I was just a boy, my mother took me with her to visit her aunt and uncle and their son, my mother's first cousin. Mom had tried to describe her cousin's physical condition, but I was still not prepared for what I saw. Her cousin was at least 20 years older than me, but he had spent every day of his life confined to a bed owing to a condition which everyone called 